2 Timothy chapter 2, and we begin reading in verse number 1. We're continuing our series, Because He Lives. And Paul writes these words, You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Verse 6, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops, Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. And look at verse 8. Here's what Paul says. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And this is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Holy Spirit, um, there is so much in that short little text. 13 verses that speak powerfully to us today. This is not just some words concocted by human instrumentation these are words that were breathed by the Holy Spirit to the Apostle Paul in prison to communicate to Timothy so that those words could be carried on to the faithful leaders in the church at Ephesus and for us today. Those words are life. The resurrection of Christ is powerful. It means something. It's not just a day that we celebrate once a year. It means something in my everyday life that you, Jesus, rose from the dead. And I pray that today, Holy Spirit, you would help me to communicate what it means to know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings being made conformable into your death. Help us, Lord, to, to leap into the hope of walking in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to no longer be satisfied with status quo or just getting by as Christians, but to walk in resurrection power. Stir that hunger and that desire in us today. Lord, I uh, pray that in these moments you would quiet our hearts, our minds, our spirits, give us ears to hear what the Holy Spirit would say. And I pray, God, that you would help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which is from you. I pray for your anointing, not as one who deserves or has earned it, but instead as one who needs it. 
and must have it if I am going to communicate rightly your word. So speak through me today. Challenge our hearts and change us by the power of your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Gordon McDonald is a um, pastor, an educator, a writer, great preacher. He told this story um, many years ago, 10 or 15 years ago. He told this story um, at a church in which he was preaching. Here's what he said in the 1920s on the heels of the Bolshevik Revolution when Joseph Stalin was extending his chokehold over all of what became the Soviet Union. Stalin sent political speakers out to small little Russian towns and villages to brainwash the people about Marxism and about the Russian form of communism. Peasants in these villages were forced to hear the harangues telling them what they must believe. It was made clear to them that the teaching of Christian faith was to come to an immediate end. And the church in Russia was to no longer be active. What none of them understood that Stalin sent out was that hundreds of years of Russian Orthodox teaching about the resurrection could not just be rubbed out of people's souls just like that. So one large crowd of people sitting in a public auditorium listened for three hours to the speech of a Russian leader as he tried to convert them to Marxism and the glories of the Communist Party. And when he finished, he was exhausted, but he had taken his best shot. He was sure that he had convinced the crowd. So he invited questions. Here and there, people rose to ask questions, but he was satisfied that he had done his best. Just as things were about to end, and he was to sign his success seal over what he had done, a Russian Orthodox priest stood up at the back of the hall and said, I just have one thing to say. And that is, Christ is risen. And instantly the crowd responded, Christ is risen indeed. McDonald said, this is the third time I've told this story this morning. But at the end of the second worship hour, a couple of ladies came up and introduced themselves. One of them said to me in a heavy accent, I am from Russia. Thank you for telling your story. It moved me greatly, but I must tell you one more thing about that story which you did not tell. You need to tell people that when the crowd said Christ is risen indeed, they knew for certain that every one of them would go to jail. They were willing to stand up and be bold for the truth. Tertullian, who was born in 160 AD, was a leader in the Carthage church. Church father said this, and it's the title of this sermon today, truth does not blush. Truth doesn't back down. No matter what threatens truth, truth stands up boldly and does not blush. 
Paul's second letter to Timothy joins 1 Timothy and Titus in a book or a series of books, three of them in all, that we call the pastoral epistles or the pastoral letters. They are letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus, instructing them on how to pastor their local churches. In the second letter, Paul is writing from a Roman prison. It's probably his second time that he was put into prison. The first was at the end of the book of Acts. This is probably the second time he was in prison. And it is most likely right before Paul was executed himself for the cause of Christ. We know that because at the end of 2 Timothy in chapter 4 is when Paul writes those words, I am already being offered up. And he says, I fought the good fight, I've kept the faith, I've finished the course. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, not for me only, but for all those who love his appearing. So Paul is in a Roman jail, and he is encouraging Timothy and all that he writes to, to be loyal to the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in hardship. That was the central truth of what Paul was saying. No matter how hard it gets, Timothy, no matter how much pushback you feel, Timothy, be loyal to the gospel, be loyal to the cause of Jesus Christ. The central truth, he said to Timothy, that will keep you when things are hard and, and when people are pushing back and, and when it seems like your world might be falling apart. Timothy, the central truth that will keep you is that Christ is risen. He didn't stay in the tomb. He came out of the tomb. That's why Paul says this right in the middle of our passage that I read to you today. He says this, remember, remember, Timothy, that Jesus Christ, who was the seed of David, was raised from the dead, according to my gospel. That's what will keep you, Timothy, if you will remember that Jesus was raised from the dead. Let me just give you a note about Paul's use of the term, my gospel. It's kind of an interesting phrase you remember the life story of Paul, Paul was called on the road to Damascus. He was killing Christians and God struck him down by a light and blinded him and said, Paul, why are you kicking against the pricks? Why are you killing Christians? Why are you persecuting me? And finally, Saul of Tarsus, later to become Paul, gave in and said, Lord, I'll do what you've called me to do. And he said, I've appointed you to be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now Paul calls it my gospel. He does the same, by the way, in Romans 2.16. And in Romans 16.25, he calls it my gospel. But it was not that he felt like he had invented it or created it, but it was a gospel that he felt like was entrusted to him. He didn't have the right to try to improve on it or change it or twist it. It was the gospel that had been entrusted to him. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11, he says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Everybody look right here for just a moment. We don't have a right to improve on, twist, pervert, or change the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that was committed to us to preach as truth. Say amen if you believe that. Paul said, it's my gospel because it was entrusted to me and I must deliver it just as it came to me. But at the core of the teaching of the gospel is this absolute truth 
that Christ is risen, a truth that won't blush, a truth that according to Paul in his letter to Timothy should be called to mind often. Look at it one more time. Always remember, this is in the New Living Translation, always remember, Timothy, that Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. So, why is the truth of the resurrection so significant and so important? Four things, they're all simple today. And they're all right here in our text. Number one, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead ensures an unfettered, an unchained gospel. Look at verse 8 and 9 again. Paul says, always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. And because I preach this good news, I am suffering, Paul said. Paul said, I've been chained like a criminal. But look at this line, get it, but the word of God cannot be chained. You can put me in chains, Paul said. You can throw me in a prison, but the word of God is not fettered. The word of God is not chained up. It cannot be stopped. You realize that Paul spent roughly 25% of his missionary career in prison. 25, one out of every four days of his missionary career, Paul spent in prison. One church historian described it like this. Roman imprisonment was preceded by being stripped naked and then flogged. A humiliating, painful, and bloody ordeal. The bleeding wounds went untreated as prisoners sat in painful leg or wrist chains. Mutilated, blood-stained, clothing was not replaced, even in the cold of Windsor. Most cells were dark, especially the inner cells of a prison like the one Paul and Silas inhabited in Philippi. Unbearable cold, lack of water, cramped quarters, sickening stench from few toilets made sleeping difficult and waking hours miserable. Because of the miserable conditions, many prisoners begged for a speedy death. Others simply committed suicide. Paul spent 25% of his ministry in those conditions. But it's in settings like that that Paul wrote encouraging words, letters of joy to Timothy and to Titus, speaking to them about the glory of Jesus Christ. Please understand this, Paul was not at all pleased with the chains in which he found himself. He wasn't happy about those chains, but his repugnance regarding his chains was immediately contrasted to the gospel, which could not be chained. Paul said, I don't like it, I'm here in chains, but the gospel isn't. I may be sitting here in these conditions, but the gospel has not been stopped. Martin Luther, in a mighty fortress is our God, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You see, Paul had seen 
And he experienced the power of the gospel working before, even when he was in chains. Look at what Paul writes in Philippians chapter one. He said, I want you to know, brother, look at this, that the things which happened to me actually have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. It's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, I want you to watch this for just a moment. Here's what Paul said. Don't feel sorry for me. I'm sitting in a Philippian jail. But here's the deal, Paul was saying. They've got me chained up to a Philippian jailer. And they work shift work. They work eight hours and then they bring another Philippian jailer and he is hooked to me for eight more hours. And then there's a third one that comes in. And you know what Paul did? All that time when he's chained to a Philippian jailer, he's telling them about Jesus. When you hate being a Philippian jailer if you didn't love Jesus and he just kept, and they kept, they kept winning him to Christ and the whole palace guard knew that Paul was there for Christ and what it was doing was not only was he winning the palace guard, but those who were on the outside looked at his boldness and they became bolder because of Paul. So he said, don't feel sorry for me. I may be chained, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is not fettered. Listen, we sometimes live our lives afraid that the gospel is going to get silenced. And then we do nothing to make sure that that's not the case. School-sponsored prayer was removed from the schools by the Supreme Court on June 25th, 1962. And we're still whining about that. That was 60 years ago. Bible reading and the recitation of the Lord's Prayer was removed in 1963. Remember the atheist Madeline Murray O'Hare was instrumental in making that happen. But every parent, every grandparent, actually everybody, look at me for just a moment. It may have been taken out of school. They may not be able to read the Lord's Prayer in school. They may not be able to pray in school, but it was not taken from your home and from the church. We sit around and we whine about, oh, the gospel's being silenced. No, the gospel's being silenced if you're silenced. If you allow the change the world tries to put on you to cause you to be silenced toward the gospel, you have missed the whole point. We live in fear that there's going to be a greater clampdown, but that must not be an excuse for defeat. I'm just here to tell you the gospel cannot be fettered. It cannot be chained. It is alive and powerful. The tomb was unable to hold down the living, breathing word of God, and chains cannot fetter the gospel of Jesus Christ. Say amen if you believe that. Don't live in fear. Satan can't silence truth. Truth doesn't blush. Chains that may bind others do not have a hold on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It must be lived, it must be spoken. Your seed planted will grow. Martin Niemöller was a, um, a German Christian. He opposed Hitler. But he acknowledged that he was complicit too long about the treatment of the Jews. He spent the last seven years of his, of the Nazi rule himself in concentration camps. Because of his complicity, he said to the Jews, 
I, I'm not worthy to stand beside you because there is guilt between us. I have failed you. I've sinned against you. But here's what Niemöller wrote. He said, the gospel is not defense, but rather attack. It's up to the world to decide its position. The gospel is glad tidings, it's good news. We will not allow the gladness it gives to be taken from us. Please hear me this morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ ensures that the gospel can't be chained. Truth does not blush. You cannot fetter the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Number two. The resurrection energizes a war-torn soldier. Anybody ever get tired spiritually? Raise your hand if you have ever been tired spiritually. Look at this. Paul said, you, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Remember that Jesus Christ, here's the key, seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel for which I suffer as an evildoer, even to the point of change. But the word of God is not chained, therefore I endure. That's how I endure all things the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, I am weary. Uh, I am a war-torn soldier of Jesus Christ, Paul said. But I can endure because the resurrection of Jesus Christ energizes me. Can I just make this real practical? Paul was saying, if Jesus could suffer, if he could be taught, tortured. If he could be killed, but then resurrect, I can surely endure my suffering knowing that one day I'm going to rise. Knowing that one day I'm going to stand atop of this. It may be difficult in the short term. There's so many today that are so war-torn and they think they can't make it. I don't know if I can go on any longer. I want to tell you today you can because of the resurrection of Jesus. It energizes war-torn soldiers. P.T. Forsyth, I used this quote a few months ago, but he said, unless there is within us that which is above us, we will, shall soon yield to that which is about us. You see, what keeps us from the world, what keeps us apart from the world, what keeps us victorious, even in war-torn stage, is that there is something within us. And that something within us is the same spirit. Somebody say amen that raised Jesus from the dead. If the spirit that raised him from the dead lives in me, then he energizes me. Paul said, Romans 8 and verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, he will, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. N.T. Wright said, we are not to be surprised if living as Christians brings us to a place where we find we are at the end of our own resources and that we are called to rely on the God who raises the dead. Look, look here for just a moment. It is not a bad place to get to the end of your resources. It is not a bad place to get to the point where you say, I don't know if I can go on any longer. Because then you are forced to depend upon resources that have no limit. There is no end to that supply. 
How many believe that this morning? Come on, say amen if you believe that. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me. So even if I'm at the end of my resources, the resurrection of Jesus energizes the war-torn soldier. Paul said, Timothy, you can make it. Paul said, I'm in, I'm in chains, but the gospel isn't chained. You may be persecuted, Timothy, but the spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. The resurrection energizes a war-torn soldier. Number three, it empowers the divine plan. We're going to have some fun with this one because I get a little theology in the mix here. And uh, we may be about half and half on this theology. I don't know where everybody stands on this, but it empowers the divine plan. Or we may be 99 and 1, and if we're 99 and 1, I'm in trouble. We'll find out. It empowers the divine plan, the resurrection of Jesus. Look at this. Paul writes this. Look at verse 10. And this, this, this point, just so you know, probably going to lower the volume and just teach for a few moments, all right? We kind of move from preaching to teaching, but I want you to get this. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, first of all, let me precede this by saying no smart preacher ever talks about election um, and tries to cover it in seven minutes. So you can just write me off as a smart preacher. I'm not, all right? But I'm gonna tackle it anyway for just a minute. Because of the certainty of the resurrection, Paul said that he could endure all things. I, I can endure all things for the sake of the elect, the resurrection gives him that power. For the sake of God's divine plan with the elect to accomplish what God wanted to accomplish, Paul said, I'm willing to endure all things for the sake of the elect. Philippians 3.10, Paul said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to, I want to walk in that power. So who is the elect? That, that's the question that I'm going to foolishly tackle here in just a, a very few moments. Who is the elect? Let me just say it like this. Those who have, by faith, trusted Christ as their Savior, who believe he paid the price for their sin and became the substitute for them on the cross, they are the elect. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus, who have believed that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, took their place. How many believe Jesus took your place on the cross? All right. And you placed your faith in that and you say, Lord, I believe that sacrifice was enough. I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to be better. I don't have to impress you, God. You paid, you became the substitute for my sin at the cross. If you place your faith there, you are part of the elect. Now, the question that is controversial is who does the choosing? Do you choose or did God choose who the elect would be? The Augustinian view, we also call the Reformed view, this would be the Calvinistic view, would say that God chooses and no one can refuse. If God chose you, it doesn't matter what you do, you will ultimately be saved. If God chose you before the foundation of the world and made you one of the elect, then no matter what you do, 
no matter how hard you resist, his grace is irresistible. One of the key points of the Calvinistic doctrine. And John Calvin, I love to read John Calvin, was a great man of God, believed in the glory of God. One of his key doctrines was grace is irresistible. If God called you and elected you, then you cannot resist. People like John MacArthur, John Piper, Tim Keller, all men I have great respect for are of this view. Some great authors, great preachers, great teachers, but they believe that God shows and no one can refuse. But look at me for just a moment. The flip side to that is, if God didn't choose you, if you're not one of the elect, for whatever reason, if God did not in his sovereignty choose you, then you are predestined to eternal hell, no matter what you do. You could be sitting here today and enjoying the worship service. They would probably argue you wouldn't enjoy the worship service, but, but theoretically you could. But if you're not elect, it doesn't matter what you do. They would argue that you're not part of the elect and therefore you cannot have eternal life. Let me suggest to you a different view that I think is the biblical view, and that is that Christ is ultimately the elected one. Let me explain this to you. Look at Isaiah 42 and verse 1. God is speaking about the Messiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one. Notice it is capitalized because almost all translators understood this to be about the Messiah. My elect one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. So it is clear that the one being talked about as the elect one is Christ. In Luke 9, 35, when Jesus is baptized, or excuse me, this is on the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice comes out of the cloud that says, this is my son, my chosen, or my elect one. Listen to him. 1 Peter 2 and verse 4, coming to him as a living stone who is rejected indeed by men, but he was chosen. He was elected by God and precious. Now again, this is theology in the middle of a Sunday morning sermon, which I love. I don't know if you do or not, but I'm the one with a microphone, so it's all good, all right? So if we place our faith in Christ... If we say, yes, I believe you died for me, then we are, according to Scripture, we are in Him. We are in Him. We are in the elect one and the chosen of God. Look at what Ephesians 1 says. Look, look how many times, if you have your Bibles, you may even want to underscore this. Look how many times in Him shows up. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Look at this. In Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him, in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he, look at this, made us accepted, look at this, in the beloved, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Look at me for just a moment. Our election is in him. I, I love this illustration. I wish I had a whiteboard here, but that would be very un-Sunday morning-like. So no whiteboard. 
But if I had a whiteboard, I would draw, some of you have seen this illustration before, but I would draw a train track and I would put a boxcar on that board and, and I would put on the outside of that boxcar the word Christ. And so if I get in that boxcar, I'm going where that boxcar goes. I am, I am predestined, I am elect if I get in the boxcar. If I am in Christ, I go where Christ goes. I am seated in heavenly places with him. I will dwell with him forever. His spirit lives in me. If I stand outside and say, you know what? I, I think I'll choose not to jump in that boxcar. Then I'm not going where that boxcar goes. My election, I believe God, I believe God is sovereign. Could God have said, I choose you and I refuse you? Absolutely. But I believe God in his sovereignty said, I am willing that none perish. And so in my sovereignty, I'm going to turn choice over to them. And they are going to find their election be sure in Christ. If they choose my elect one, they will have eternal life. You see, God wants all to be saved and to choose him. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And look at what 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but he's long suffering toward us, not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. Now my very humble opinion this morning, and I understand that there are men and women much smarter than me and for hundreds of years who have argued this point. My humble opinion is you cannot reconcile this verse with an election that predestines some people to hell. A God who is willing that none perish, can we really fathom that he might have said, though I'm willing that none perish, I choose you for heaven and I choose you for hell. To me, it cannot reconcile. If his plan is that all come to Christ, then that divine plan is empowered by the resurrection. Paul said, I can endure all things for the sake of the elect. I can endure all things for those who will follow Christ. I can do it because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How does the resurrection empower that plan? Number one, it was the resurrection and then it was the ascension that set the stage for the empowering of the Spirit. Remember when Jesus was on earth and he said to his disciples, I, I have to go, I have to leave. Because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit can't come. And you need the Holy Spirit. If I stay here, I'm in bodily form and I, I'm only going to speak to a handful of you at a time. But if I leave, the Spirit will come. And he will abide with you forever. So in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus said, right before he ascended, you're going to receive power after the Holy Spirit comes. And you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so on the day of Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit came. And it filled the believers. And the early church grew. First of all, they were adding to the church. Read the book of Acts for a few chapters. They're adding, and then they start multiplying. Why was that? It was because of the power of the Holy Spirit that came. Because Jesus resurrected and ascended. 
As a matter of fact, Peter says it. Look at Acts 2.32. Peter writes these or speaks these words. This God, this Jesus, God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you now see in here. Look at me for just a moment. Let me put this together. So Jesus died. He was resurrected. And then he ascended. And the day of Pentecost came and everybody said, what in the world is this? And Peter said, calm down. Let me tell you what it is. This Jesus that you crucified that God raised from the dead, has ascended, he is seated at the Father's right hand, and he's the one that poured out the spirit that you now see and hear. And it was that spirit that carried the gospel so that the elect could come to Christ. This is the power of the resurrected and the ascended Christ. He poured out the spirit. And secondly, it is living it is in the living of the power of the resurrection with the assurance as Paul had that is worth the enduring trials to empower the plan of God that all be saved. The resurrection of Christ tells me I can keep going and I can endure hard places because if it means that others come to Christ and God's plan is carried out, it will be worth that for me. In his novel, Ah, But Your Land is Beautiful, Alan Payton tells the story of Robert Mansfield, who was the headmaster of a school in South Africa during the days of apartheid, which was a cruel system, as you know, of racial segregation. When Mansfield's school was barred from competing against a black school, he finally took a stand against apartheid, and he resigned his post. A friend said to him, you do know that you will be wounded, right? Do you know that? And Mansfield replied, pointing to heaven, when I go up there, the judge will say to me, where are your wounds? If I say I haven't any, he will say, was there nothing to fight for? I can't face that question. How willing are you... Uh, to suffer but be empowered by the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection empowers the divine plan. And let me give you the fourth point and I'll quit. Resurrection enhances our ultimate hope. Look at what Paul says at the end of this chapter, at the end of this, of this text. This is a faithful saying. If we died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Look at me for just a moment. We're going to wrap this up pretty quickly this morning. The resurrection is a reminder that this is not all there is. How many are glad this is not all there is? How many of you become more and more glad every day that this is not all there is? There's a reward. There's an ultimate glory toward which we are moving. I don't know what happened when I was uh, preparing this sermon, but I got a little bit nostalgic. Let me just read you a few stanzas from some songs that um, a few of you will remember. Um, only about a third of our staff would remember these songs, right, Clayton? I, 
They didn't know who Gilligan's Island was. We threw that out there. Who's that? Um, when clothed in his brightness, transported I rise to meet him on cloud. His perfect salvation, his wonderful love, I'll shout with the millions on high. How many know that song? He hideth my soul. We sung about it. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And what about by the crystal flowing river with the ransomed I will sing and forever and forever praise and glorify the King. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me, and the fairest of 10,000. We used to sing about the fact that the resurrection just tells us this is not all there is. And now we live in this really prosperous 2022 American, it's about me, I want what I want now, culture, I don't care who I run over, and the church. 70%, as we mentioned last week, of whom believe there are other ways to eternal life. The church has forgotten that this is not all there is. The resurrection screams to us, there is something beyond this. Here, Paul's hope is enhanced by the resurrection. Let me just make it real personal. He's talking to Timothy. He might only be, I mean, we don't know. He may have been just a few hours from his death. He's writing these final words. He says, Timothy, remember, they're about ready to carry me away. I fought the good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. I'm, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. Timothy, I'm about to be taken away and die. But Timothy, remember Jesus Christ who is the son of David. In other words, he is our Messiah. He fulfilled that role. But he was raised from the dead, Timothy. Timothy, I endured so you can endure. Timothy, because I'm going to die with him, someday I'm going to live with him. If I endure, and Timothy, if you endure, we are going to reign with him. Only if we turn away from him, Timothy, only if we deny him. That's the only time he will deny us. But even if we fail, Timothy, even if our faith gets weak, he's still faithful, Timothy, because he cannot deny himself. The resurrection enhances my hope. What I face now is just a blip. It is a blip worth enduring. It's truth that will not blush. Paul said, this is a trustworthy saying. This is true. There is a hope because of the resurrection. Why don't you stand with me, if you would, this morning, please. I'll tell you a real quick story. And then we're going to close. Actually, in the 20th century, there were two stories that were written in the 20th century that both had the same title. It's really interesting. The title was The Door and the Wall. Two different stories, same title, same century. One of those uh, stories won the Newbery Medal for Children's Literature. 
was a 10-year-old son of a medieval knight. He became very ill and crippled. He gets separated from his parents by a cruel enemy army and there's a friar named Brother Luke that protects him. This little uh, 10-year-old boy is ashamed and he's disappointed by his legs. He's lived his life crippled. People call him Robin Crooked Shanks. He feels that his entire life is gonna be insignificant because he's unable to serve. He has no chance to show any courage. He has no chance to show any glorious deeds because of his disability. But the friar takes him to the monastery, teaches him to read and to swim and to carve. And he teaches him to pray for the faith that a fine and beautiful life still lies before him. Always remember, the friar says, thou hast only to follow the wall far enough and then there'll be a door in it. So at the end of the story, it is his disability that actually leads him to opportunity. His crooked legs cause the enemy to underestimate him. The resilient spirit he has grown in response to his challenges keep going. And he alone finds the door in their fortress wall. He ends up against all odds being the rescuer who can steal unsuspected through enemy lines and save the people he loves. It is his faith in the old friar's words that keep him going. You must only follow the wall long enough and then there will be an open door. The other story was written by H.G. Wells, best known for his science fiction works like The War of the Worlds. In Wells' story, the promise of the door and the wall is a cruel hoax. A man is haunted all of his life by the memory of a door that leads to some enchanted garden that contains all he had ever longed for. He searches in vain for the door his whole life. And at the end of the story, his dead body is found fallen off a construction site behind a wall marked by a door that looks exactly like the one he had been seeking. His seeking for that wrong door led to a tragic ending. So here are my final words this morning. Life is hard, sometimes it's even cruel, and sometimes it seems a little bit unfair. But the truth is that there is hope beyond this hard life. The gospel is unfettered, can't be chained down. No matter how war-torn you may feel today, the resurrection energizes you along the path that empowers our witness to accomplish the divine plan, and it, it's enhances our ultimate hope that this is not all there is. Truth does not blush. Life is hard, but the resurrection has defeated hopelessness. One door leads to death, the other to a life of resurrection power in Jesus Christ. And you get to choose. Thank God, you get to choose. I get to choose which door we're going to walk through. Will it be for life, resurrection power, disappointment. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you because you live, we can face tomorrow. Because you live, the gospel is unfettered, it's unchained. 
Because you live, we can endure the struggles of this life. Because you live, we can see your plan accomplished and hope for a better day. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. May we respond appropriately to your call, I pray in Jesus' name. With your heads bowed for just a moment this morning, possibly you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're not serving him. Your heart's not right with him. You kind of pushed him aside, thoughts of him aside. Maybe you've always been looking for that elusive door that will make you happy and fulfilled and you've never found it. Telling you find it in Jesus if you'll turn to him. If that's you this morning, you say, Pastor Kevin, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I'd love to pray for you. Is there anyone in this room that would just slip up a hand? Heads are bowed, nobody's looking around. But if you're here today and you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life, would you just slip up a hand? Anyone in this room, pray for me. I want to surrender my life to him today. Anyone in this place, anyone in this room. With your head still bowed for just a moment, how many would just say, Pastor Kevin, I uh, there are some difficult places in my life. There, there are some days I feel pretty war-torn, but I know that I can endure because of the resurrection of Jesus. I know there's a better day coming and I want to be used. I want to walk in the power of the resurrection. I want to be empowered to see God's divine life and plan played out in others. If God will use me, I'll walk in the power of his resurrection. How many would raise your hand with me and say that's the desire of my heart? Let's just worship him.